What's up, queens? Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm your host, Ro. And this is Savannah. And I'm Lilith. Today, we're going to be talking about the Gabby Petito case. Specifically, we're going to be reacting to the body cam footage by the police. For those of you who've been following this case on social media, I'm sure a lot of people are already familiar with this case, but we're going to do a bit of a rundown of the details of the case just for those who are not so familiar. Yeah. And bring it into a broader discussion about how to protect yourself against uh, men like this and also the red flags to look for. We're going to be breaking down some of the red flags in the police body cam footage. So a bit of a background on Gabby Petito. Uh, Her and her boyfriend, Brian Laundrie, um, had been dating for a few years um, and they had started a van life YouTube channel and anybody that follows social media, the van life vloggers really took off in the past couple of years, maybe three, four years. And it's basically where a couple, a solo person, but often a couple sell all their worldly possessions and then travel the country in a souped out van. So they are essentially travel vloggers. So it's a pretty popular genre of YouTube videos as well as on Instagram. I think we all dream of, you know, being able to travel and being able to see, you know, all the wonderful things that life has to offer. A big part of it is minimalism. There's always some part in the video where they describe how they're so much better off not having all of the things that used to tie them down. They've learned that they can live and be and live anywhere and be anyone. It's fairly lucrative for for a lot of the early adopters, I think. Yeah, there's some of them. I mean, they have millions of followers and they do take a lot of really cool pictures. So that's the background in which the world was introduced to Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie prior to Gabby's disappearance. And then the larger world was introduced to them, obviously, after her uh, now confirmed homicide. So July 2nd, the couple left Florida to travel through Colorado and Utah. August 12th, they were this August 12th is is a big date. That's the date that Gabby Petito and Brian Landry were stopped by Moab police in Moab, Utah. They received a 911 call saying that a male was seen hitting or slapping a female. And when the police arrived there, they found a what they called a domestic dispute. And by that, by now, I think so many pe- millions of people have seen the body cam footage. It's it's very hard to watch. It's very creepy. But we'll get into that in a moment. So on August nineteenth, they posted on YouTube their channel, Van Life, beginning of our Van Life st- uh, journey. August nineteenth. This was after the domestic uh, incident. So they posted a video about their Van Life. It was very idealistic. Very. Um, very like, you know, lots of pictures of them kissing, like holding hands, walking down the beach, that sort of thing. So it's almost creepy to me that that happened after the domestic violence. Like that was, that was posted a week after the domestic violence dispute. Um, it also goes to show you cannot trust the relationships that you see on social media. And Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so much of it is contrived and so much of it is um, them only showing you the parts of the relationship they want you to see. Yeah. I mean, they're already on a on the road for over a month based on the timeline when the police were called and then they posted their video uh, a week after that. So the last time that Gabby was seen alive was checking out of a hotel in Salt Lake City, Utah on August 24th. Then Petito's mother said that she last spoke to her daughter August 25th. And that was also the same day that her last uh, 
Instagram picture was posted. Yeah, so a, a witness claimed in a TikTok post that she and her boyfriend gave Landry a ride in Grand Teton National Park August 29th, that he was camping alone for days. That's suspicious. So this so this is the guy who, for at least, at least from the last time that Gabby was seen on the 24th, 25th to the 29th, that he was aware of her death, <laughs> that he's still out here camping, and she then more, more than likely was dead somewhere between this time. Yeah. That, that's like the kind of fucked up thing about him is that he probably murdered and then, and then he's like just going back to enjoying his vacation, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So then September 1st, police said that Landry returned by himself to Florida in Petito's white van. He was seen for the next fe- next week or so, uh, like cleaning his van, mowing the lawn, just going about his day. Um, September 11th, Petito was reported missing by her family to the Suffolk County Police Department in New York. Uh, her family lives in Long Island, New York, um, and said that Petito stopped communicating with her friends and family. She was, and she was believed to still be near Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. And then during this time, for some reason, Brian's family never thought to tell the, her family where they were or what was happening. The only reason why they reported, uh, why Gabby's family reported the disappearance of the police was just because they hadn't heard back from her. Yeah, it was very odd that he showed back up to his parents' house. In her van. In her van. And it seems weird that the parents didn't ask questions, or maybe they did and he gave them some lie. But either way, I think for, I don't know how, how close or how far they live, but the fact that he was riding around in her van without her should have been... A red flag? A red flag enough, yeah. And he didn't report her missing, he just carried on for another couple of weeks, even though she wasn't with him. It's very bizarre. Yeah. And then on September 14th, Landry and his family released a statement saying that he will remain silent under the advice of his counsel, which super sus. Like, what kind of person comes back from a road trip where your partner just disappeared, apparently, and then the first thing you do when you get back is lawyer up? You don't even go to her family and say, oh, shit, you know, Gabby's gone missing. Like, um, like this is supposed to be your fiancé, like, the person that you're closest to. And you just go ghost on her family when she doesn't come back with you. It's so... I don't know what kind of person would be cool with that. I just don't. And then September 15th, Northport police named Landry a person of interest in her disappearance, but that he was not making himself available to be interviewed by investigators or provided any helpful details. So he refuses to cooperate with the investigation. Another red flag. That's like, what, fifth red flag? I mean, there's no reason to not be concerned about her safety unless you already know she's dead, right? Because otherwise you would be like, oh, let's send a search party, even if they had split up. Yeah, even if you're broken up. you th- Like, I don't have a single one of my exes that if I thought that they were missing and I knew where they were, like, I, even if I didn't like them, I would still give information to, so that hopefully they'd be found, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So he know it, it's very clear that he knows something happened to her. Well, that she's not coming back, basically. Or that he he's hella guilty. That's, that's how guilty people act. Yeah, September 16th, Petito family releases a letter to the Laundry family pleading for their cooperation, and they just left them on red. Laundry's family just leaves her family on red. Um, don't respond. And keep in mind, Gabby lived with brian's family right so she knew brian's parents she knew their whole family 
you know, they you'd think that they would at least give somewhat of a shit about her safety. Disgusting. Um, and then on September 17th, Landry was reported missing by his family. It's just... <sighs> the family said they hadn't seen him in days, which again is also crazy to me. His whereabouts are currently unknown, and currently he's they're searching for him in a or a nature preserve in Florida. And so a lot of people are speculating that he's either committed suicide or that he's on the run. And then September 19th, that's when they found a body that they said was consistent with the description of Petito. They then did, they then uh, did an autopsy confirmed on September 21st that the body um, was in fact Petito's. And then September 22nd, they issued a arrest warrant for Landry. And that's more or less the summary of the, of the timeline of events. There's still an open investigation. Um, this is the best information that we have so far. There's a lot to dissect here as far as his behavior and the red flags uh, that were presented during the initial contact they had with the police that we think is important to dissect, in addition to the discussion of the case at large and his behavior afterwards. And also the behaviour of the police as well. Um, I have a lot to say about that. So their roasting is coming. But before we get into dissecting this incident, we just wanted to say that our thoughts are with Gabby Petito's family. Um, Ultimately, they are living every family's worst nightmare when their daughter goes out and doesn't come home. Um, And we really empathise with their situation and hope that they find healing at some point and justice um, over the loss of their daughter. So, and our thoughts go out to her um, and also to all the other families who are missing their daughters, their wives and sisters, because unfortunately Gabby Petito is one of many, many millions of women who are disappeared at the hands of men. I think the aspect of their social media presence and them being part of this van life movement really helps really is part of the, the push of the visibility of the case. Um, and there's been some discussion about the about how the media only covers certain types of cases, mostly specifically around missing white women. Um, I know there was some discussion that a lot of that had to do with Gabby's parents behind the scenes trying to push it to the media because obviously their daughter had been missing for a month and they didn't hear anything from either Laundry's family or the police. Um, but uh, I think it's a tragedy and that we're going to focus on the kinds of dissecting the kinds of tells that I think any woman can use in this situation, because obviously, you know, when we're, when we're talking about male behavior and male violence, that's something that we all experience. So we're going to dive right into Brian and Gabby's encounter with the police as taken from their video cam on August 12th. His name's Gabby. Brian. Gabby, Brian. Okay. What's going on? How come you're crying? I'm just crying. You've just been fighting this morning. Some personal issues. You want to tell me what's going on? Yeah, I don't know. It's just some days I'm really bad OCD. And okay. I just, I was just cleaning and straightening up back of the end before, and I was apologizing to him and saying, I'm sorry that I'm so mean because sometimes I have OCD and sometimes I just get really frustrated. Not like mean towards him. I just like. I guess my vibe is like I 
This reaction that Gabby had was all too familiar for women who've ever been in relationships with narcissistic men. The self-blame, the, you know, um, thing I have, you know, I'm crazy. I'm, I have anxiety. I have OCD, that sort of thing. I think it's really heart-wrenching because you're watching her have almost a complete emotional meltdown, right? She's crying. She's rambling. She's talking about everything that happened that day. Um, you know, she's talking about all her issues. The first one starting like, I have OCD and I wanted the van clean and um, the parameters in which they had their argument. So red flag number one in what Gabby says is that she pathologizes her own. She pathologizes. She blames herself. Basically. She says, you know, I have OCD. I have anxiety. I'm apologizing to him. I said, I'm sorry. I'm so mean. And a lot of people on social media seem to be taking her statement and the fact that Brian later on, you know, blames her as well. A lot of people seem to take that at face value and they are just so quick to write it off. Like Gabby is the abuser, you know, Brian's the victim and, you know, just letting it end at that when in fact, like the reality of domestic abuse or, you know, emotional abuse is that often the victim does blame themselves because they know that when, if, if they were to blame the abuser, that their situation would be much worse for them later on after the police leave. Well, yeah. And it's, and it's, I think that the tell to me too, is that she doesn't just assert what was wrong and she starts to immediately pathologize herself to the police. We don't know if she actually has an OCD uh, diagnosis or not. And also if that's uh, an if she does have a di- diagnosis, if it's reactive to abuse or not. But the, I think the first tell that she was already undermining herself and undermining her feelings is the fact that she immediately went into pathologizing the fact that she just wanted, it seems like she just wanted the van to be clean, <laughs> which doesn't seem like a very strange. Yeah. Like I'm so crazy because I want a tidy van. Like basically this conversation has all the red flags of coercive control. The line, he wouldn't let me in the car. He told me I needed to calm down. Like in our episode with Al Kamihira, how an abuser often will use coercive control to control every little minute thing that the victim does, right? And very often they do end up blaming themselves or labeling themselves crazy because that's what that's what coercive controllers do is they actively break down your psyche and make you think that you're crazy so that you're not able to recognize that they're that the abuser is the problem i mean it seems like i mean from the the footage that what gabby's experiencing or what happened might have been an incident of reactive abuse and it's also quite interesting how she said you know we've been arguing all morning whereas he was like it was just 
it came out of nowhere. A minor thing that escalated. It came out of nowhere. So it's almost like he's minimizing his role whilst um, inflating her role. So she's saying how it was, you know, constant tension. You know, we've been on the road together for a month. It's getting, and to be fair, that's normal. Like, I, this is why I like traveling alone because I just can't deal being with people at close quarters for any length of time. So that's quite normal to be, especially when you're living in a tiny van as well. Like, you've got no privacy um, and it's just, it's, it's long so she was saying a very different story and he just said oh she you know it just came out of nowhere and it's just oh yeah she's got this 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 and that you know listing off you know various um instances of like of like poor mental health so um i do think what we're seeing is reactive abuse that was my initial impression anyway I want to say most of most of the time when a woman is like blaming herself and pathologizing herself and saying she's crazy, chances are you're not actually crazy. That's just a completely normal reaction to being treated badly over a long period of time as well. Yeah, because um, she gives little tells that perhaps he's been either negging her or just pushing her to explode over time. Yeah, he said um, she was talking about her van life uh, YouTube channel and she said he thought I he thinks I couldn't do it or he, th- he thought I couldn't do it right so it's been very clear that he's probably been you know com- complaining or having a negative reaction to her completely normal desire to you know document her travels have a YouTube channel that sort of thing right so um, he's probably been wearing down her self-esteem for a very long time yeah it's it's heartbreaking to watch to see how women blame themselves for the bad treatment that they receive from men. So um, as a general rule, the less you say to the police, the better. And the thing that immediately kind of broke my heart and also made me just like want to come to the screen and like hold her and be like, girl, just don't hold it together in front of the police as much as you can. Because like we've talked about in many, many episodes, the police is full of the worst uh, and most low, low values growths alive. A lot of police officers, uh, a large percentage of the police force um, are actively... Abusers. Like 40% of police officers are wife beaters, okay? Abusers themselves. And also familiar with the tactics of coercive control because they are, in fact, the system. And the system itself, yeah. uh, in a lot of ways, exists to perpetuate uh, power. And specifically male power. So... Um, in this particular video, her undermining her feelings about all these things gives the police reason to then create a narrative that blames her. Dismiss her. Yeah. So what's really, really frustrating is because you can almost see as she's talking about it, like, okay, this is how the cops are going to then build a case against her because she's pathologizing what seems on the surface as a reasonable request of wanting the van to be clean. Um, and then also being upset that uh, Brian apparently locked her out of the van all morning. I mean, especially I'm guessing August in the middle of fucking desert is probably insanely hot, you know, so you're also dealing with a person who's more than likely just reacting to the actual weather. <laughs> if you've ever been in uh, that kind of hot weather it can just make you very emotional. Um, so you have the, you know, what's clear like a physical background in, in addition to emotional breakdown, um, which is a completely normal human response. But I think talking with the police at this point and then her highly emotional state, her blaming herself for everything that happened and then uh, not setting up the boundaries and then sticking to the facts is what the police are going to then use to later 
blame her. It's a, it's a common misconception that the police are neutral. Let me tell you this. The police are not your friend. They are nobody's friend. What they are looking for is information to get you with down the road. And, you know, Gabby went into this with good intentions. I believe she was being very honest and this isn't her fault. This is a problem with the system. But when, if we look at the police, they are not trained to deal with domestic disputes. They are not trained to deal with a lot of issues that women face, let's be real. Um, so when they come across it, they come into it with their own prejudice, with their own ideas of how things worked. And again, like Rose said, a lot of them are misogynist. So what you get is misogynists crafting the narrative which is what's happened here like none of them are mental health professionals you know none of them said okay let's get you to a hospital to get you evaluated none of that they just took her word for it that she was hysterical and these these men they may have i think one of them had experiences of a woman being in quotation marks hysterical we don't really know what that's true and then he used that schema he was like yeah my ex-wife was crazy yes <laughs> ex-wife ex-wife the key word um so some bitter divorce scrot rolls in going like yeah oh my gosh like just his jaw clenched looking for an opportunity to stick it to a woman for having emotions yeah and and he then used that schema and applied it to this situation because he said when he was taking Brian to the hotel at the end, oh yeah, you know, my ex-wife was, um, you know, she had anxiety as well. Oh, crazy bro. I know what it's like. Like, ha ha ha, da da da, slap, slap, slap. They've even fucking fist bumped. And I'm just like, so as a woman, you know, as women, like, you know, when people were talking about defunding the police, I completely get it because the police are clearly ill-equipped to deal with you know, what was a incidence of domestic violence, but they missed the tells that they should have picked up on that that would have allowed them to correctly identify who was the real uh, victim and perpetrator. Because the way she's reacting is a symptom of reactive abuse. And let's face it, right, you know, Gabby was what, you know, five to 110 pounds. Realistically, what damage is she going to do to somebody unless they were attacking her first? They pointed out that Brian had scratches on his face, but I want to point out that scratches are usually defensive wounds. And also the person calling in, they said he was slapping her. Why was that not... But why was he not questioned about that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the police said something along the lines of like, yeah, but we didn't know what she was doing before to make him hit her, pretty much. Which is like classic abuser, like, look what you made me do kind of shit, right? Oh my god. Um, yeah, so I think the police just rolled in. They see a woman pathologizing herself and blaming herself. And of course, like, given that police are so much more likely to be abusers than the general population, abusers love that. They just jumped right on that and were like, it just made their job so much easier to just, their job in their mind being to blame women and exonerate abusive men, right? It just made it so much easier to do that. And also when Brian was showing clear signs of deception or that his story differed from hers, again, they didn't question it. So do you want to go to the second, the second clip here? The part where Brian's talking? Yeah. Yeah, where Brian's talking. I didn't get, very, I didn't get overtly physical. I was just trying to keep her away and, and not get hit. And then I got really loud and like that's probably your attention where I was going. Back up, get away, just give me a... Okay, so, so you I, said you pushed her to create some distance, obviously, yeah. right? What happened after that? What got, what got the scratches on your eye? The phone. The phone. So you pushed her and she hit you? She was... I wasn't, I, I, it wasn't like a push and she jumped on me. She was, she was already 
She was already, I don't know, she was already swinging and I was just, yeah. yeah. A lot of angles, a lot of nails, a lot of rings. Yeah. You got yeah. three scratches in your neck, you got one on your left side of your head. You got one in your face here, and you got four for the bleeding on there. So I just tried to put like two hands. Do you mind lifting up your right sleeve for me? I'm curious about something. I suppose fingernails, but yeah. I'm not complaining. Absolutely. I'm not complaining about Is it bruised or tender or anything like no, that? No, no, no. Okay. I'm fine, and I love that. I hope she doesn't have too many complaints about me. <laughs> I'm just, uh, you know, I, I feel bad. I think it's so public. I was just trying to be loud. Just, just, you know, I just try to make her calm down and be like, look, everyone's watching. So one of the things that was sort of striking to me about the video is how at a lot of points, it almost seems like the cops are leading Brian. It's both, you know, scrotes, scrote recognized scrote, but also I know the police just are always trying to create a narrative so they can just wrap up a case and leave. So they've been known to do this, that they, they lead the conversation in order to create a plausible enough narrative for them to base a case on, right? And was telling to me was when Brian's describing the alleged fight, we're like, oh, I was, uh, he, he does say like, oh, I pushed her a little bit. And then she started scratching back at me. And then uh, the cops are like, oh, yeah, 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 I totally understand. And then start like trying to like, oh, so I see you have scratches on your on your on your face. Uh, why don't you lift up your arms? I can see the scratches on your arm and everything. See if there's anything on your arms. So then what they're doing after that is helping to build a narrative, helping him build a narrative. Right. Notice how they extend the effort to build a narrative for Brian that they don't do for Gabby. Right. That's a that's actually a choice, right? That's a choice that they they did to take his version of events at face value and then create a scenario in which she's the aggressor, right? Um, and and to be fair, I don't know if she actually gave them enough to work on as far as what else ever happened. And this is like not necessarily clear from this small this small clip, even though the the original video is like over an hour, but they do take some time uh, to at least thoroughly like actually physically examine him and then feed him the information that they would need to then build their, their police report. So they basically cast Brian as the victim, even though they either don't have any evidence to show that, or they have plenty of evidence showing the opposite that, that Brian's actually the aggressor and that Gabby's the victim, but no, they, they have a scrote to scrote moment and decide like, okay, we're going to cast our fellow bro here as the victim because, of course, abusers love to cast themselves as the victim. So they kind of, like, see each other that way. Um, and so, as an aside, I just want to rant about the whole... You know, whenever women talk about, like, abuse as something that men do to women or abuse or domestic violence is something as, like, a male pattern behavior... There's always people going like, but women can be abusers too, and men can be victims too. And like, while it may be true, it's only in very, very rare circumstances. And it bothers me a lot that this push, this narrative that like men and women are equally abusive and can equally be victims of abuse. What you end up having is when you try to make, when you try to start out with that narrative and then you try to make reality fit your narrative, you end up with cases like, Gabby Petito and Brian. Oh, women can be abusers too. So you show up to a scene where it's very obviously the man is being, is the abuser towards the woman. And yet they have to cast this sort of opposite role to make reality fit that narrative, that non-existent, that, that narrative that's not based in reality and that only serves abusers. 
And another thing as well is that abusive people, they very much lean into the fact that people who are calm and collected are taken more seriously or they're believed more than the person who's hysterical. That's why in Lindy Bancroft's book, why does he do that? He says this very well, is that an abuser will be out of control in quotation marks, smashing, you know, stuff, you know, um, you know, shouting and screaming, that when the police arrive, he's very cool, calm and collected, you know, whilst the woman is obviously a wreck because he's broken her down. And the police see that and think, well, we've got this, you know, you know, well-spoken, you know, young, credible gentleman, as in the Gabby Petito case, so he couldn't possibly be lying. But meanwhile, you've got the woman who just can't stop crying, um, who's, you know, basically blaming herself, and then they're obviously going to believe the person who's cool, calm and collected. And that is an abusive man's tactic is, is crazy making, right? If you're, if you're coherent and able to speak well, you're not crying. You're just saying, you know, I don't know what happened, bro. Like just, she just came out of nowhere. That's a red flag. You know, they're gonna, they're gonna think that, okay, okay, that's the rational one in this situation. She's crying. So yeah, clearly she's hysterical. Yeah. You have to get your story straight in front of law enforcement, period. That, that's the thing that can be an entire case can hinge on. It's just like your initial reaction with the police and your ability to craft a convincing narrative and have some semblance of objectivity. Because that sets the tone for the rest of the in- interactions that follow. It's like it's almost creating like an outline for how the rest of the case is going to be conducted. You have to understand the police are fundamentally lazy. And they're fundamentally male as well. I mean, they're scrotes. Scrotes are low effort. To, to go full all cops or bastards, you have to understand, um, and as a person who dated someone in law, law enforcement, long story, uh, that essentially they get a lot of calls. So they're like anybody who has a job, they're looking to do the least amount of paperwork possible. They're looking for the easy win. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. They're looking for the ability to wrap it up and call it a day. So the more convenient and convincing narrative um, especially if there's not like a body and especially in domestic incidents is always going to be the one that takes precedence. So just understand that uh, even in the best case scenario, that the reality of anybody who works a job that sometimes is frustrating is going to kick in and they're going to look for the easy win. So that's why when you encounter law enforcement, it's so important for you to have a coherent story, like feed them something to help them do their job <laughs> and to help yourself. Or say nothing. Plead the fifth. Either say nothing. I mean, it's so hard for women who are actually in that situation when you're fresh out of the, you know, when you've just been subjected to, you know, emotional abuse. Or Here's the, another red flag was the, the driving thing, right? So he says that she grabbed his arm and she blamed, she didn't uh, say that she grabbed his arm. She just said that they were arguing while driving and that was the result of the um reckless driving from personal experience abusive men will use reckless driving as a scare tactic like i have had times where i'm sitting in the passenger seat arguing with a man and he'll threaten to like drive like there have been times where i've been dating a guy i'm in the passenger seat and he threatens to like you know drive off a bridge or drive into a tree or something like that and it's it's almost fucking sad looking back on my life that this has happened like multiple times but it's just a, a scare tactic to get the woman to be like, no, babe, like, I'm so sorry, you know, don't do that. And like, be- to beg for your life and that kind of stuff. It's a power move. It's, it's, it's a, a power, power move. move. 
Yeah. So that is a huge, like reckless driving is a power tactic that abusive men will use over women. So after that sort of uh, life or death kind of moment, you got that adrenaline rush, man, it's like kind of triggering to think about. They're pushing, they're pushing you to react by doing things that are purposely going to scare or antagonize or um, just overall heighten your emotional state. So that if you do later try to explain anything, you're going to look comparatively unhinged. Yeah. And, and like, okay, so I had a moment that was quite similar to this when I was driving with my narcissistic ex. We were driving through a rural mountain road that had, um, like, on one side it was a mountain, on the other side it was, like, a cliff. And we were arguing, and he starts suddenly, like, speeding. So he starts going... 10, 20, 30 kilometers over the speed limit. And I'm screaming. I'm like, this, you're driving way too fast. If we hit a curve, you know, we're going over this cliff, like that kind of stuff. And he's like, I could see this fucking evil glint in his eyes saying like, like he clearly enjoyed like my distress. But after that happened, I could, it's like, I thought I was going to die. Like when you, when you have that moment of like thinking you might die, you can't, it's like, you can't control yourself. Right. I'm, I'm trying to think like, what would I have done if I'd been pulled over by the police in that moment? Would I have been able to, you know, maintain my composure? You know, it's really fucking hard, but it's something you have to do. I think you just need to channel it into righteous anger. <laughs> and that's something I can think of is like, not pathologize and immediately blame yourself, but be like, this asshole went 30 over the speed limit and almost killed us both, right? And this is where if you have health, healthy self-esteem. But I would have been, cra- I would have been acting crazy. I would, if you have, that's the thing. If you have healthy self-esteem, you can, you can do that righteous anger, right? And healthy boundaries. But an abuser, if they've been doing their job right, quote unquote, right as an abuser is breaking down your self-esteem. So they'll start, they'll start, they'll start before that. Like, well, I had to go fast because like you were being irrational or something. And so it's then someone like Gabby, whose boundaries aren't that don't seem to be that great would have been like, well, I was acting really irrational in the cars and then he had to speed up and, um, you know, or something like that, where it seems like his behavior and reaction to her behavior is clearly disproportionate, but it doesn't come across that way because she spends so much time blaming herself before she gets to the fact that he did something actually insane, which actually I would even actually put locking your girlfriend out of a van in the middle of the desert in august is insane behavior yeah he's the crazy yes, person here yes that is insane i actually hate the police i'll say it on record oh the part where he says he says um i i hope she doesn't have too many complaints about me that was the other red flag when he was talking to the police that's an admission of guilt mm, yes yes like their stories don't match up she's blaming herself she's being apologetic uh, here's the here's the thing okay so for all the people trying to cast brian as the victim and gabby as the abuser if that was really the case the way that brian would have acted um like let's say brian was innocent um if a, a man who's in a relationship with a woman he loves is going to want to protect her so he's probably going to want to say things about his partner like you know, to try to smooth things over. He's not going to just immediately, like, blame and, you know, um, throw her under the bus. The very fact that he was so quick to throw her under the bus was another red flag. And then the saying, I hope she doesn't have too many complaints about me. That knows he's done. That he, that means he knows he's fucking guilty. That's a really good point, actually, because, you know, let's say, like, you know, you rightfully said, if she was the aggressor, um, 
we know that if a victim speaks out against their partner, the repercussions can be very, very bad. And the fact he was just so comfortable, just you know, like I said, laying the blame at her door, it shows that there's he knows there's going to be no repercussion. Yeah, and then there's a moment where the police say, "So you know, you're the you're the victim here. Gabby's the aggressor." and um, Brian fucking laughs. It's deepest delight. It's the deepest delight, as they called it. Yeah, yeah. He he scoffs. He's like, <laughs> like that. That is <sighs> like when a narcissist has crafted a narrative that they know is not true. The moment when other people buy that narrative, that's when they're like, "Holy fuck!" Like these idiots around me actually believe my lie. Like I'm such a genius, and these people around me are so stupid. It's called deepest delight. That's why if you see someone, I'm, I'm not saying all the time, but it's common when um, if it's a serious situation, um, they start grinning and laughing a lot. It's because you know they know it's bullshit, but um, they're happy that somebody else believes them, and they start smiling, basically. Yeah, so if he was really the victim in that situation, he would have been dead serious. Like, if you're a victim of domestic abuse and someone comes up to you and says you're a victim of domestic abuse, you don't laugh, right? You 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 would just be like, fuck. You would just sit there, like, dead serious. But the fact that he wasn't taking it seriously is is another red flag. He knows they're painting this this narrative that he's the victim here because they're checking for bodily injury. And I don't know, and to be fair, I don't know what the laws are in this particular state or particular county, because sometimes there are laws that say whoever has the bodily, if somebody has a bodily injury, they have to take someone into custody or something like, I don't think anybody actually got arrested, but they actually have to uh, believe the person with a a bodily injury. And, And we go into this a little bit in the coercive control episode of that that sometimes um, even well-meaning domestic violence laws can have uh, applications that in practice are unfair because they're open to the interpretation of the police officer at that given time. And again, like I said, a lot of cops are just lazy. And so if they're just like, okay, we can build a case based on the fact that this guy has a scratch. So over and done, Johnson, let's get out, get out of here. Right. And at the end, when they say go up to Gabby, like, we're not going to cite you. Like, she should be fucking grateful to them. Like, oh my gosh, thank you for not citing me for something in which I'm a victim. (sighs) The whole case just makes me so angry. Okay, so in the last part of the video, um, it's where the police are explaining to Gabby the parameters in which they're releasing them, um, and as well as to Brian. Chris, I'll say crisscross applesauce. Can I just do the shades to the vault? Um, I'll I'll give you some shit. (laughs) Sound good? Hang tight for me. I've decided I am not going to cite you for domestic violence battery, okay? It was only going to be a class B misdemeanor. However, the domestic violence portion of it enhances it. Makes, like, a major pain in the butt, especially at your 22, right? So I'm choosing not to cite you today. I'm not going to release you guys together. I want you guys to stay away from each other tonight. She's agreed to it. Take some time to yourselves. You guys both have the exact same story as to what led up to the incident. So, taking some time tonight, specifically, taking tonight away from each other is going to be the major breaker in all of this. I think that'll help you guys, especially tomorrow when you guys meet up. Just try to not contact each other unless, like I said, first chattering, something happens, you guys have to jump on the car right now and drive back to Florida because something happens to at first, the cops are talking to Gabby. Gabby are Gabby sitting in what looks like the back of a cop car, and 
they say to her, well, I'm not going to cite you for domestic violence. Um, it would only be a class B misdemeanor, but uh, the domestic violence uh, aspect of it can essentially put you in the system, right? Or become a bigger problem for you in the system because domestic violence arrests, depending on your state, can, um, are potentially, even if they're a misdemeanor, may not be able to be expunged, could put you on a registry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the cop is basically saying, we're not going to arrest you. We're not going to cite you. Um, we're just going to tell you guys to split up. Yeah. I mean, I wish that they'd driven her to a domestic violence shelter so that, and in fact, I, I, I heard somewhere that, um, there was actually a women's shelter, like five minutes drive away. I wish they'd brought her there so that she would have someone to talk to, to unpack some of, you know, what happened. But no, they left poor Gabby in the van by herself and they take him to a hotel. And it was interesting that the only person on that call out who suspected that the relationship might be toxic was a woman, um, a park ranger, um, who attended the call said that she tried to essentially talk Gabby out of the relationship and asked her to question it. Yeah, so this wasn't recorded in the body cam footage, um, but she came out, um, what was her name? Um, Melissa. Yeah, Melissa Holes. I mean, and the police officers, so essentially the overarching point is that police officers are not counselors and not psychologists. They're there to build a case for a crime. Right. So essentially, this is probably, again, probably the easiest way to resolve for them paperwork wise. Right. Because this is her this is her car. So they're releasing they're releasing Gabby with her car because I think the car's in her name, telling her to go home, giving Brian a hotel since he doesn't have a, a ride anymore, telling them to just split up. And so I would say this is more or less probably a standard reaction if they're not going to arrest anybody is to just tell them to to leave. Um, and I think if I believe the reason why Brian was able to get a hotel is because they have some kind of, uh, fund or, um, ability to invoke, um, shelter for victims of domestic violence in this particular state. So he was a beneficiary of this law, which is fucking bullshit. She should have been the one to benefit from that. But I don't know, because it was her car. So I kind of feel like they basically were trying to find the easiest way to split them up, right? I guess. Rather, they can't give the they can't give the car to Brian, and he can't sleep on the street, I suppose. But at the same time, she said that he drives the car. She doesn't... She didn't drive the car, like, round. But she owns it. Um, but it's, she owns it, though. Okay, yeah, fair enough. So it's her, it's her vehicle, so they can't... They can't release her vehicle into his custody. So again, if you just look at it like Occam's razor and remember that the cop's job is to, or the, the cop's job in their mind is to create a narrative and get the fuck out of there, that this was an easy resolution for them. So more than likely, when you look at the entirety of the video, they're already calculating in their mind, how are we going to resolve this in the simplest way possible? So they say, okay, well, if the vehicle's hers, get, release the vehicle to her get Brian a hotel room so that they can split up and then we won't have to arrest anybody, don't have to do any paperwork, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that that more or less to me seems how most po- police interactions are going to go in addition to the scrote nonsense where they just believe Brian or they try to create an, a narrative with Brian. So you have t- both of those factors working against you as uh, a woman. A lot of times when you are having this encounter, these encounters with the police, the desire for the police to take the easy narrative to not have to do a lot of work, but also the tendency for police to empathize with men over women. So what can we 
learn from this. Like, I, I don't want this, the, the lessons learned to be like, uh, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda, you know, Gabby should have done this. Like Gabby should have done that because unfortunately it's too late. You know, um, what happened was not her fault also. So it's not like it's her responsibility to avoid being murdered. Larger point, larger point. I don't know how long they had been together and if they had made any type of vacations before, but being in a, being on a vacation with a guy that's already kind of shitty could be a horrible nightmare, even in a small amount of time, but you're putting a small space and a long period of time with a man who is a shitty person. You know, the larger point of um, really vetting men before you even make, I would even say just like short vacations with them because you're going to be stuck uh, is so important. Brian's behavior throughout the entire process just points to a large, a, a long pattern of toxicity and more than likely gaslighting it, her out of her boundaries. Seems to have a lot of toxic elements. So many women seem to have just accepted this idea that it's okay to be mis like if you're in a relationship, it's okay to be miserable a good chunk of the time. Mm. You know, like at, at FDS, we tell women like if you are, if this man makes you miserable even a little bit, dump him. Like walk away. He should be making you happy all, if not like at least ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time, right? And the times he's not making you happy, it shouldn't be because he needs a personality transplant before he's a nice person. It can just be a minor disagreement or, or something like that. Something that is not that isn't fundamentally wrong with him. Yeah, not. I'm, I was afraid he was going to lock me out of the car and then leave me for dead in the desert. Like, that's a pretty fucking big disagreement. It shouldn't be because there's something, you know, fundamentally wrong with him. Again, the fact that he locked her out, that is a testament to his character, which is what I was saying. Like, they shouldn't need a personality transplant before you can enjoy the relationship. Yeah, so first of all, like, vet men heavily before traveling with them or being in a confined space with them at all. Because, imagine, like, okay, side note, but so many of the van life couples that I see online even when they're posting their best moments their relationship seems toxic you know what i mean like there's there's one in particular that i've been following for a while now called Eamon and beck i don't know if i want to call them out i don't think Eamon's gonna murder beck anytime soon i hope they don't but <laughs> i hope fucking hope he doesn't but like every single video there's so many like little red flags like you know you know he'll do something that pisses her off and she'll be like passive aggressively upset about it and like apparently they've been engaged for like nine years or something and like so she's a forever girlfriend you know he, he like fucks up really minor things that should be really like you know you know this he has this sort of like almost like strategic incompetence that really pisses me off i don't know if i want to put this in the video because it's almost too dark but still the larger idea here is that don't let the beautiful scenery of the van life hide the fact that you're still going to have to be in close quarters with this person when the cameras are off for 24 hours a day for months at a time. And if your relationship is not stable, if you, especially if you didn't live together before and he's a, at least a tiny bit of a kind of a scrote, then there's going to be things that things that seem like little things that are suddenly going to blow up because you're in cl close confined quarters with each other the thing with scrotes as well they're like rotten apples and the saying a bad apple doesn't spoil the, is wrong it's a bad apple like ruins the rest of the bunch like their toxicity will leak onto you as well yeah and in fact like the closer you are to someone who is toxic the more they will poison you so um, yes exactly 
you know, like, I don't know if you've ever seen that picture of like two pears, you know, and one, one pear is rotting and it makes the other one rot kind of thing. It's like proof that you shouldn't be around toxic people is like the meme usually like with toxic people or with shitty people, like the further you are away from them, the safer you are, the closer you are to them, the more like they contaminate your life. I don't know if that makes sense, but this is the pattern of escalating abuse, right? So one of the ways that abusers work is by isolating you, right? And making it so you cannot leave. I can't think of anything more isolating than being stuck in a van with someone in somewhere as like remote and desolate as Utah, right? You're driving through places where, you know, there's some places in the West coast where you could be driving like a hundred kilometers and not seeing a single gas station, you know, and you're thinking, fuck, like I'm so far away from civilization. If anything happened and I'm stuck with this person, I'm totally fucked. Like, I don't know. I feel like so many scenarios are bad to be in an abusive relationship, but van life is probably the worst one. I think that just compounds everything. Yeah, it's like a pressure cooker. If you put yourself in a situation where you can't escape because you're hundreds or thousands of miles from home, it's like being a boiling frog in a pressure cooker, right? And this is a, a perfect time for a person who's abusive to ramp up their their abuse and ramp up their narcissism, right? Because now you have no escape. So when I'm looking at this dynamic, you can kind of, you can almost kind of infer that the time they spent together over the month that Brian is increasingly uh, amping up his abuse, uh, letting listening to her less, punishing her more for her behavior. And he probably feels justified in this because they've been, they're spending so much time together and then he can always just say, well, I don't want to have an argument. So then he just starts, you know, trying to so then he just locks her out of the van yeah just lock her out of the van do things do things to antagonize her or feel justified in ramping up his abuse because it feels like them spending so much time together there's probably more incidents that he can claim triggered him a second takeaway from this um this incident for me was the that police are not your friend and they made a series of of errors that um that i believe is just unacceptable so if we look at the body cam footage for example the police acting you know like they're brian's bros um brian has several inconsistencies in his story so he says that it just came out of nowhere she just you know you know kicked off and she was put you know i was trying to push her away to um to get her to calm down whereas she says that you know we've been arguing all morning um the call itself um was that he was slapping her that wasn't questioned at all um and then there was a funny one as well when he was like oh i don't have a phone at the very beginning and then at the end he magically like a magician with a bunny and a top hat produces a phone again they don't question that i don't know if that's in the video but that's in the larger video right and it's not in the video that we're going to post but it's a longer video yeah it's in the longer video yeah it's it's in the longer video yeah um i mean or you can link it at the bottom but then as well when brian returns home alone the police for some reason don't consider him a person of interest until he disappears several weeks later even though he was the last person or should have been the last person to see gabby alive. and he has her car and he's got her car that car is not his um so for i think from the time they reported gabby missing on the 11th of september to the time he disappears he's still not considered the prime suspect which is just bizarre to me because he was the, he should have been the last person to see her 
it, it, it's tough. It's tough with them um, homicide investigations when they don't have a body. So I don't even know. Again, we're working from a secondhand knowledge of whatever their particular police protocol is. They, sh- they should have brought him in, and it was, and it wasn't considered a homicide until they found the body and ruled it that. But even so, you have a missing person. Surely logic dictates that. It's just like my dad, when I lose something, right, and it's really unhelpful, he was like, where did you last see it? I was like, if I remembered that, I wouldn't be looking for it. But anyway, um, stuff like that. So you go back to the person who had the last contact and they just didn't do that, Um, you know, for whatever reason, unknown, which is a big failure on their part because it also allowed him to get away. Um, He up, sticked and left. Like, God knows where he is now, but perhaps if they'd brought him in, um, then you know, perhaps they wouldn't be be spending hours and hours doing a nationwide manhunt for this. So, and, you know, the bigger point that I want to make, especially to women, is that the police are not your friend. If you are struggling with something like domestic violence or you want to help women who are struggling with domestic violence, calling the police is sometimes, like, one of the most unhelpful things you can do because they are not trained to deal with this issue you are much better off donating to your local women's shelters or women's charities or homeless shelters because like, they are, you know, they will have people who actually give a shit and who are actually trained to spot abuse. The police ain't it. They're not it at all. Yeah, so it looks like, it's like it took a couple of days for them to get like a search warrant on the van. I'm just looking at the actual things here. So, And it's not even his van. Why are you back in someone else's car that's not yours? And the person's not there. Like, shouldn't they have at least arrested him for car theft or something like that? Because... For car theft? Carjacking! That's carjacking! So here, here's here's the, uh, the conversation about what actual protocol is, which is what they did and what they typically do for people who are not white. There's the law and paper, which it seems like more or less they were following. And then there's also the reality, which the police would have more or less jumped the gun or uh, more than likely brought in a person, just picked him up off the street if he were not white. Part of the reason why the police do that more so with um, white people is like the expectation they'll be able to lawyer up and lawyer up well, which makes the police reactive by trying to create an airtight case, which makes them take longer, right? Versus someone they know doesn't have any money that they can just pick up off the street and they're like, oh, this asshole is going to get a public defender and it'll be easy for us to Swiss cheese through that. So that's also the other thing that I think worked a little bit in Brian's favor is that the police had to take additional time to actually build a legitimate case before they take this guy in. Yeah, they had to go buy the book because they didn't want the case to get thrown out on a technicality or something. That's the other subtext when we talk about the way that black and brown people are treated by law enforcement versus how white people are often treated by law enforcement. It's like, again, cops are lazy. (laughs) If they could just bring this guy in and be done with it, most of them kind of would. But the reality is like you're talking about institutional power. And when you look at a person like him who probably comes from an, I guess, an okay background, I don't know how wealthy he is or wealthy or not, but he did lawyer up. They probably expected him to lawyer up. And so in that case, they have to make their case a lot tighter, which bought, which bought him a lot of time. So my first thought watching the Gabby Petito footage, the body cam footage, was that this is why you should never admit fault in front of a man. Like you were saying, don't admit fault in front of the police. I'm going to extend that to not just men, but any person who might not uh, want to trust your boundaries. This, this might be seen as controversial. I know a lot of people are going to be like, Oh, that's toxic to like, you know, never admit fault and blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing. A few, few reasons. One, 
like I was raised by narcissists, right? So whatever, you know, before I found FDS, I was always the sort of person where, you know, if something happened, I, I would often like blame myself or admit fault or apologize, even if I didn't actually do anything wrong, just to sort of keep the peace. And also because I had this idea in my head that um, if I admit fault or if I apologize or if I say sorry, then the other person's going to see that and they're going to do the same thing and like meet me halfway. It was like a sort of, I thought in my head that, oh, if I lead by example, you know, the other person will show me the same courtesy. And they never fucking do, okay? Especially if you're talking to a man, right? And so one of the ways that my life has markedly improved since finding S is I, finding FDS is realizing that female socialization has kind of fucked us over. You know, a lot of women have been raised with this idea that, you know, you should be the first, per- you should be the pers- first person to admit fault, that you should apologize and so on. And that, that makes you more mature or like a better person or whatever. Unfortunately, when you're talking to men, especially like narcissistic or, you know, low, like, a good man, for example, you could, you know, maybe apologize for something and, you know, have a conversation about it and, and it would be fine. Most men are not high value, right? Majority of the time I find when you apologize to a man, they just take that as an admission of guilt. They, they, they don't have to think any further about the way that they contributed to the situation. When you're talking to a shitty man, more often than not, they're just happy to be like, yeah, you're right. It is your fault. And then just completely lay the blame on you. And then, you know, they they don't, you know, you're not going to get a cookie for being mature or for being the big or for taking the higher road or for being the bigger person or whatever. Right. You're just going to be seen as a sucker. And I'm, I'm now of the view and my life has markedly improved since I've taken this attitude of like, never show weakness to a man, not just in my romantic relationships, but also at work, you know, in, in business, for example, like, you know, I remember when I was younger and I would, you know, sometimes admit mistakes to my boss and then that would be used as an excuse for why I don't deserve a raise or, you know, why, you know, oh, maybe, you know, I shouldn't deserve to get this next project or, you know, maybe I don't deserve this promotion or something like that. Right. And I learned pretty, I learned the hard way that when you're talking to a man, you have to, you have to advocate for yourself ruthlessly and speak and never, never admit weakness, never admit fault, never apologize. Because the moment you do, the moment you show any weakness, men are willing to pounce all over that to destroy you. So I'm of the opinion that that's just a hallmark of low value scrote behavior and sociopathic behavior. Yeah. Majority of men are low value scrotes. <laughs> so that's why you have to act that way with them. To extend that to the workplace, like the workplace, um, especially in a capitalist system often rewards uh, psychopaths and sociopaths. So a lot of the behavior um, that you find present in uh a relationship that is toxic um, would lead you to believe that, okay, it's never okay, or you should never admit fault. But I think the argument I would make is that if you were actually in a relationship with a high value man, you should be able to at least like come to a compromise. And again, I think more often than not, if you approach a problem from like whose fault it is, you're already... You've lost. Yeah. You've lost. Uh, you're already in a bad relationship. Yeah, it's already a red flag. It's time to cut your losses because, again, I, in a good organization, in a good workplace, as well as like in a good relationship, it's everybody versus the problem, not everybody versus one person or one person versus the other. So my my argument, I guess my counter argument with that is that um, I think you should never pathologize your feelings. 
Um, and I know for me, especially sometimes, um, that time of the month for me, like I can just be really, really exhausted. And so my patience is wearing thin. And so there are certain things where I'll just be a little bit less patient during certain times of month than other places. And I know this for a fact because I can just literally feel like the blood draining from my body and I don't want to listen to people's shit. But I would never pathologize that to my boss and I would never pathologize that to or in a relationship, right? Assert yourself, uh, validate your own emotions. And a person who is high value will allow you to have your boundaries and emotions without trying to pathologize you or trying to assign blame, right? Because it's not, if you're in a good relationship, it's not you versus the other person, it's you versus a problem. And um, so I I don't know. I I think if you're in a situation with with a scrote, then I think Lilith's Lilith's, uh, advice applies, which is like, definitely never admit fault to a narcissist because a narcissist will take any little type of peace ever. Even if you are wrong, here's the thing. Even if you are fucking wrong, never ever admit it to a narcissist, a sociopath, or even just a low value, manipulative, shitty person, man or woman. Right. I, I, I'm of the kind of person I keep my guards way high and I only show vulnerability to women that I really trust who are very close to me. My female, like a limited number of female family members and like five female friends tops. Those are the only people that, and, and also on the podcast, but that's cause it's anonymous and I can say whatever the fuck I want anyways. But the rest <laughs> of the time <laughs> in real life, um, I keep my guard way the fuck high. And you know, some people might say, Oh, that's like a trauma response or that's not healthy and blah, blah, blah. You know what? It keeps me safe. Okay. So that's why I do it. I mean, it's like being a politician, right? So I, I mean, I think you have to understand that's what politicians do. They try to take credit for all the wins and then deflect all the blames. Just watch any politician ever. This is a skill. So most people who work, if you work in any type of organization where there's politics, which is pretty much all of them, especially the higher you, higher you go up on the food chain, um, you have to learn how to spin a narrative in your favor and uh, knowing that people have short attention spans to keep um, building a narrative, constantly building a narrative in your favor and then deflecting attacks against you. But in a relationship and in a long-term I would even say the long-term job, unless you're really a person that likes politics like that, it's not healthy and it's not a person, it's not something I would uh, recommend for your health and sanity. And so the people that tend to thrive in that kind of situation are in fact so psychopaths and sociopaths for that reason, because they never see a problem with like taking all the credit for themselves and deflecting blame on other people and like completely bullshitting people all the time and creating a narrative uh, in their favor and against other people because they thrive or like that kind of environment or it's just second nature to them. And it's really hard to compete with people like that who have been swimming and who are the sharks in the shark infested waters, or at least have been swimming much longer than you. But that's what I'm saying. Like there are people who are psychopaths, sociopaths, narcissists. Those people exist. They're out there in the world. And that's why I tell women like your default position until you have assessed that that person is safe until you have done your vetting and you've built rapport and you, you trust that person and you've seen examples of their character to show that they are not the sort of person to throw you under the bus if you admit fault in front of them. Until you've determined by your own means that that person is safe, your default position should be to never apologize, never admit fault, never show weakness. I know a lot of people are going to be like, oh, that sounds miserable and I don't want to live my life like that. Well, that, you know, that's your choice. You can live your life however you want. Well, I think you have to test them with something small. And I think, again, it's not... Oh, that's the blood in the water strategy. Have you heard about that one? It's a, yeah, it's not a, ne- it's not a never. It's just a matter of like, uh, being strategic about it as you're getting to some, yeah, as you're getting to know someone, 
start small. This is why, again, we tell people not to trauma dump on like the first or second date. Don't tell them about like your long history of abusive relationships and all the like terrible relationship you have with your mom or whatever. And the reason for that is because it looks like shark meat, right? It looks like, or it looks like bait to a shark. That is like delicious, tasty chum to a shark. When you give them all of these pieces of information that they can then, uh, used to manipulate a narrative against you and in their favor. So when you're dealing with someone and you're trying to figure out if they're a safe person, you got to see that they're the type of person that'll keep your secrets or will um, respect when you've made a vulnerable discussion. And that's, that's part of the vetting process of a relationship because you can't be in a relationship where nobody can ever admit fault. That's like, that's definitely going to ruin your relationship and have it explode eventually. You just have to find someone who can sit with you and not blame you, but helps you attack whatever the issue is or the miscommunication rather than be collecting evidence to build a case against you later. Because that's like, and, and, and funnily enough, that's actually one of the hallmarks of divorce where I think Chris Rock does like a joke about this or he talks about um, at the, you know, once you file for divorce, everything you say and do is just this other person building a case against you. <laughs> and you don't want to start that dynamic off in your relationship. You definitely, I mean, definitely don't want to start on that. Um, and it's a shame if it ends that way. I mean, okay. I agree with what you're saying, Ro, in the sense that yes, like you don't want to be like that in with your like husband, you know, someone you care about, someone you love, right? Someone, you know, you don't want to be in a relationship, an intimate relationship with someone that you can't trust who you, you have not determined to be safe who you can't show vulnerability to and so on. Right. So yes, like ultimately the goal should be to find someone that you can be vulnerable with, that you can admit fault, you can apologize and so on too. Right. But what I'm saying though, is like, there's, it's, it's one thing to be like, this is the ideal situation. And it's the other thing to be like, this is the reality of the general world that we live in. Right. So what I'm suggesting is like, there's basically two different strategies almost like the way that you are with, the world, you know, when you haven't yet determined that they're safe and then the way that, and then once you finally determine that someone is safe, then you can relax a little and, you know, and then have honest conversations with them about, you know, and try to have these kind of problem solving type discussions. Right. Um, and one of the ways that, uh, I, I mentioned earlier, the blood and the water technique, one of the ways that you can determine if somebody is safe is by mentioning like an insecurity that's not a real insecurity, so say something like, oh, I'm really insecure about, I don't know how my arms are super long or something, I don't know, something random that you're not actually insecure about. And then see if this person tries to use that against you. Like if they make a comment like, oh, look at your gangly arms or something like that. That's a sign that they're probably a narcissist or a sociopath or that there's something wrong with them for them to want to bring up. Or at the very least insensitive. Or insensitive or manipulative. or There's something wrong with them, right? So, and, and the key is that you should bring up something that you're not actually insecure about. Because if you bring up a real insecurity, that is when you're, you're actually giving, you, you may be accidentally giving ammo to somebody who, like real ammo to somebody. You basically want to give someone, uh, you know, blanks. You know, you don't want to give someone real bullets to use yeah. against you, if that makes yeah. sense. So that when they do try to use it against you, they're just shooting blanks. They're not actually shooting real bullets. I think to your point, Liz, I think there's just a ton of women who have experienced or been in this dynamic before because of the way that men are more socialized not to admit fault. And that's that's how they socialize with each other as well, because um, we talk about, we've talked about, and the larger culture has talked about certain aspects of toxic masculinity where men don't, men don't ever drop the mask with each other. Yeah. Or it's very hard for them to show any type of emotional vulnerability because of the fact that there's most men, or a lot of men don't feel 
either that their friends are trustworthy or their friends don't know what to do with it, right? Or their friends are more likely mm-hmm. to make fun of them if they mm. start to be emotionally honest. So there's a certain there's a certain level of um, way that men are socialized to that effect. So then when they get in relationships with women, even if they're not like actively sociopaths, it's just the way that they've been taught to relate to one another, right? So then when they, they bring it back to the relationships with women, so then, I mean, and I know I've seen this all the time with like, groups of guy friends where one guy you'll you know they'll just they'll point out some fucked up thing about the other person like oh your nostrils are too big right i don't know or like you have a crooked tooth and so then that guy's called crooked tooth right like so for whatever yeah. so that's how guys that's what i mean like even guys that are not sociopaths or who are not narcissists this is just how male and female socialization works right men are ruthless with each other like and that's that's how they're socialized with each other and that's how they treat both men and women right like talking to a man for me, a lot of the times it's like talking to a brick wall, right? You know, if you try to admit fault to someone like that, you're just, you're never going to win, right? You're never going to get the result that you want. And so. I do think a hallmark of ma- of maturity though, is that men learn to do that. Yeah. And most men are not mature. Okay. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying like 90 men, 90% of men out there. Yeah. There's some exceptions who are high value, but the vast, vast majority of men have received this shitty male socialization and they're immature and they're selfish and they will try to fuck you over. And that's why you have to have the default high guard, never admit fault, never admit weakness until you've decided that you can trust them. And the, the other thing is like some women, like narcissistic women can be dangerous in this way as well. Well, and, and that's my point is that, listen, like if you do encounter a high value male and you can't work with him and can't admit fault, that like, he's going to run out of there screaming too, because there's enough of women who are that can't admit fault that are narcissistic and who have cluster B personality disorders that it would make, it would make you look like a red flag if you haven't learned how to, if you don't know when to drop. Yeah. If you don't know when to drop the barriers. Yeah. If you don't know when to drop the facade and if you haven't figured out how to engage with this person in an honest way. So there's the danger on both sides. But at the same time, a high value man will also run if you, if you trauma dump. Right. So if you reveal too much, you don't want to go too extreme, maybe. Yeah. So so there's trauma dumping is not just like um, overwhelming for the person, but it's also um, a hallmark of manipulators, too. We talked about this as like people try to reveal trauma too early because they're sometimes they're just really, really notionally needy. But also it's a way to kind of hook their claws into some people if they want they want something right. If they're if they're trying to work an angle from this person. And it could, and it could potentially, like another reason why trauma dumping is not a good idea in the early stages is that it can send a signal to somebody that you're going to be trouble down the road as well. Cause traumas can be very complex and it can manifest like later down the road as well. So that's another reason why it's not entirely attractive to trauma dump when you've just met someone. But anyways, I, that's just my two cents. Like it's up to the individual listening to this to decide which first of all like which person is safe to show vulnerability which person is not and what's a good time what's a bad time um and what kind of vulnerability is appropriate to show and when kind of thing so that's just my two cents do that with that information what you will dear listener do we have anything else to say about this case i think we've covered everything so that's our show please check out our website at the female dating strategy.com as well as our Twitter at fem.strat and our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy, where we have weekly bonus content. Thanks for listening, queens, and for all you narcissistic and sociopathic skirts, die mad. See you next week. Yeah.